I was at a club, leaving the club and going back home, horribly drunk. I had drank in the morning. I drank throughout the day. And I was driving home that day, driving wrong side of the highway. I almost fell asleep. It's nothing but the grace of God that I got home because I don't remember, to be honest with you. I remember driving wrong side of the highway, waking up, and then parking my car at my parents' house and walking in. Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. This week we're talking about another tough topic, alcoholism. I think that most of us either know someone who's had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol at some point, or maybe we've struggled with that ourselves. So it's not an uncommon issue. And my guest this week, Anira, has had her own struggles with alcohol, but she has managed to become sober and has been for about 14 years now. Is that correct? That is right, Shannon. So Anira, in preparing for this interview, I actually came across a definition from the Mayo Clinic for the term alcohol use disorder, which I did not even know existed. Um, And this is what it said, alcohol use disorder, which includes a level that's sometimes called alcoholism, is a pattern of alcohol use that involves problems controlling your drinking, being preoccupied with alcohol, continuing to use alcohol even when it causes problems, having to drink more to get the same effect, or having withdrawal symptoms when you rapidly decrease or stop drinking. And I thought, that's a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. right? But it also, when I read it, I kind of had one of those mind-blown moments because I never really made the connection in my mind to alcoholism and mental health. And that may be like a duh to people, but Mm -hmm. when I think about mental health, I'm thinking about like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and things like that, not necessarily connecting alcoholism to mental health. So... I'm hoping that also in our conversation that that will allow me to further process the mental health aspect. Absolutely. Because I could actually show you how it relates because I um, dealt with all of it together. So, you know, it definitely relates in so many different aspects. Just to start, give us some background on what your childhood was like. Sure. Um, So I was born in India. I also lived in Middle East. I'm from India, of course. And, you know, we moved, my parents and I, we moved to actually America in 1990. And in 1990, other than two weeks, which we lived in Baltimore, we moved straight to Georgia, to Dalton, Georgia. And my childhood, mostly, my dad worked really, really hard. He did the best he could. But it was, you know, like, he lived paycheck to paycheck. And in India, we lived an amazing life. 
he had people that was working for him in the house, like in different things. When we moved to America, it was kind of a shock because he had to start over. They'd mix up his education and he had to work multiple jobs, which we never had a lifestyle like that before where, you know, we didn't know what we were going to eat or drink or anything and where we all lived in a one bedroom apartment. And we saw our dad transform into somebody who was just all constantly stressed. When you didn't have to worry about money before, and now all of a sudden you're worrying about possibly paying your bills, you know, it causes a lot of stress in the house. And also um, my childhood, like I had it kind of rough for me personally, because I went through molestation. I was abused by my, as well as my mom. And I had a lot of anger towards for that, that she let it happen. Um, you know, because it was like, you know, my dad was in Malie, so he didn't really get to see that much. And even with my, when I lived in Georgia, when he molested me, you know, my dad was always working. Mom was always present during those. So it was really rough and, you know, and they didn't really get along. So I felt like I needed an outlet to kind of get away. My dad would drink to relax. So other than, you know, my father trying to do the best he can, it was a very rough childhood. My outlet was going to school, which our school, Dalton schools, that really saved me. The friendships that I had there, that kind of balanced out the trauma that I was dealing with in the house because that's where I kind of felt some form of happiness. Because when I went back to the house, I just would go back into drinking, you know, and I would see my dad relax. And that's when I was just like, oh, you know what? If it helps him relax at nighttime when he gets home from work, maybe it'll help me relax. And that's how the whole drinking kind of got started. So what age were you when you took your first drink and why did you decide to do that? I was 12 years old when I took my first drink. And the reason I decided to do, you know, even start drinking period is I saw it help my dad relax. And I was just constantly, I felt worthless. I felt disgusted, you know, being molested. I was molested by my at four years old till I moved to America, you know, and that's like close to almost seven years old. Then we, when we moved to America, my moved from India at when I was eight years old, then he molested me from eight to 11 years old in Georgia. So it was just like back to back. And honestly, I just wanted to kind of forget about all that disgusting stuff because my was still around my family. My family was really close to this. And I was like, you know what, maybe drinking will be something that will relax my mind, especially when you go to school and you see everybody look happy and look like they come from a great family background. You feel horrible that you're going back, you know, into an environment where there's like, my dad was pretty much my angel. He truly did everything and above and beyond that he could. But it was just the other things that was just extremely negative and horrible. So that's why I kind of got into drinking was to kind of forget about everything I was going through. When you did start drinking, did it make you feel the way you wanted it to feel? How did it make you feel? And did that feeling change over time? So first, when I took my first drink, I remember, because I would tell my dad not to drink. I was always just like, you know, make sure you don't drink and all this stuff. I was the only one he really would listen to. But then when I would tell him that, I would actually drink his alcohol. I was telling him that so I could drink it. And for me, I was thinking it would just get me in this relaxed mindset and I would feel great. 
it made me feel like crap. I felt like I was just like, yes, I numbed the pain, you know, by drinking and blacking out and laying down and not thinking about anything, but my problems didn't go away. I should have went into counseling. Like in a lot of the Indian culture, they don't talk about counseling. They just kind of talk about dealing with it on your own. And so it just kind of escalated. And especially if there was friends at school that might have was like, oh, you know, we just came here and we got little bottles of tequila or something. I would be drinking in class. Nobody knew it. Nobody in my family knew it. You know, I would just go home and drink. At night, I would be drinking. It was just constantly becoming an avenue for me to relax in a very unhealthy manner. Even though nobody like really guessed, it was kind of like my dark side that nobody knew about. And it wasn't that I was acting out or destroying anything or anything like that. I would just sit there quietly um, and cry majority of the time, like be extremely depressed. And I also got into thinking about suicide. I would start cutting myself as well. And that's where, you know, you were talking about, you don't know how addiction and mental health comes together. That's how it comes together. Because a lot of us that go into drinking, that go into drugs, we're not going into it because we have a great, healthy home. We're going into it because we want to numb the pain. There's something that is darker that's going on within our life that we're trying to find an avenue to cut all that out and black it out. We don't want to remember it. Well, I know a lot of people talk about like, oh, you know, Dalton's such a small town. Like people may not have like a happy moment about it. For me, Dalton was wonderful. I loved our school. I loved all of our friends. Like they were the people who saved me majority of the time. I love going to school because everybody there was just so positive and loving. And that's why it became like a family to me, became somebody who saved my life. Because when I would cut and stuff and I would cut my hand or think that I wanted to end my life, I would just think about people at school. And even though I wasn't thinking when I was cutting myself, I would have marks on my legs. I would have marks on my hands and stuff. But when I was at school, I just didn't think about that. When I would get home and then think about me being molested, hearing more other people call me that I was big, I had self-confidence issues too. I always felt like I wasn't skinny enough, you know, or that I wasn't pretty enough. And that's kind of why I just kind of focused on like doing dancing and stuff, which I started at four years old. That kind of helped me. And then you know, when I heard about beauty pageants, I was like, oh, maybe if I do a beauty pageant, that'll help me be beautiful. Not realizing there's underlying factors that we need to fix ourselves. We don't need to go to addiction. We need to fix what's truly within ourselves that's haunting us. What was a day or like a week like for you when you were drinking? How often were you drinking? Was it a constant thing all day long? It was absolutely a constant thing. It wasn't an all day long thing because, I, you know, I would be in school. So I wouldn't be drinking all day at school. I would drink maybe part of the day at school, like, you know, here and there between classes where I could still function. But how it would look like is when I would get home, I would just feel horrible. I would feel horrible. Like it could be the smallest thing that sets you off. When you already started drinking and you're in that like mindset, and you're doing that already, and you have all these trauma that you didn't work through, and then you go into where it may not be the healthiest environment. And I just want to make sure I say, like, my dad, he was phenomenal. He was truly the best dad possible. It was just other factors that wasn't so healthy. But when you have all that, and you're going into that environment, you just want to forget it. So I would go home and drink at nighttime, 
you know, and I would just kind of relax, try to do my work. I just kind of felt worthless majority of the time. And then I would get up and try to act like everything was good again, because like school was pretty much like an avenue where I kind of felt like at peace. You know, I would be around people and everybody was just like so positive. Like, for example, Shannon, you were your father was an amazing aspect for me. Code Starling was so phenomenal. I remember having him for different running and different things in tennis where he would push me because he knew I could do better. And I never really got that aspect because my father worked all day. He worked from morning to night, seven days a week. And the love that your father, Coach Starling, did was I will never forget it. And that's why when I see some, you know, a picture or something of you or your dad, it just brings me so much joy. And that's why when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, that's the least I can do. You know, I want to glorify God, but to have people like your father, who was such an amazing influence in my life. I just can't wait to tell everybody about that. And I'm sure so many of us already know your father is phenomenal, you know, not because of stuff he did, but positive things he did, but because of how he transformed so many of our lives without him even realizing. He's always been such a humble man. That's so sweet. It's such, it's so much the truth. I used to be like, no, Coach Starling, I'm not running another lap. And then I would be like, you know what? This amazing coach has me doing another lap because he knows I could run more. He knows I could actually hit the racket better than what I'm doing. You know, he was just so great. Like, he was awesome. That's cool to hear. When you were drinking, did you start to notice any changes in your mood or your thinking or your behavior I'm interested in knowing, like, what is the mindset of someone who has an addiction? So the mindset of someone who has an addiction is you feel like you can't stop. You feel like that's the only way you could de-stress. Like, for me, that's how I felt. Like, every day, if I wasn't drinking, then I wasn't able to shut down my mind. I felt like it was constantly racing. And especially as I got closer to my 20s, I felt like I had to, you know, like I was drinking even more. Like when I was going to the clubs, I would be drinking going into a job. I'd be drinking before I was already drunk getting into a club. Smallest little things that would happen, it would just trigger me to go a horrible path. Like, for example, if somebody that was close to me passed away, instead of me going to a funeral or something, I would drink like a whole bottle of liquor. I would sit in the room and drink a whole entire bottle of liquor, which is crazy. I thank God I never died of alcohol poisoning or I had to go to the hospital for that. I would feel sick to my stomach. And then I felt like such a failure, to be honest with you afterwards. And then I also saw like with these kind of horrible habits, what I was doing was, you know, I went to college at 18 years old. I didn't complete it at that time. I was more focused on drinking. I was more focused on hanging out with friends instead of doing the best potential that I could have in my life. You know, these addictions kind of overtake our mind and make us feel like you're not going to be able to cope with life without having another drink. You do. You know, it truly makes you feel like, oh, you're not worthy. Look at all the stuff that you like. For me, I was like, look at how many times I screwed up. Like I had an abortion when I lost my virginity when I was close to 21 years old. When I did that, I was like, felt like a horrible failure in our Indian culture. You know, and I'm sure in like Christianity too, which I wasn't a Christian at that time at all, far from it. But in our Indian culture, you don't have sex till you get married. 
So when I did that, I was just like, I cannot believe this. You know, I'm like, I'm the only one in my family who keeps screwing up. Other people in my family were screwing up, but it wasn't like a big deal. For everybody, it was always just about me. Any small little thing that I was doing, they would make it to the next level. My father would never make me feel like that, but everybody else would. And that's when I would just drink more and more because I was like, man, I kind of believed what others would say about me. Like, oh, yeah, she's, you know, she's like that black sheep. She's always doing something wrong. You know what I mean? And then next thing I knew, I was just like, felt like, okay, you know what? When I drink, I don't have to worry about all those negative comments. I could just focus on myself. I could just sit in a room by myself. And when I would drink, I would also felt like I could be myself a little bit more. I wasn't ashamed. When I would go to a club, for example, if somebody caught an attitude with me or was disrespectful to me, I hated being disrespected because of my mom and others disrespecting me growing up. I hated disrespect, period. And being in an abusive relationship before with a past romantic relationship I was in. That was one of my things. So when I was drinking, I felt like it was okay for me to lash out. If a guy was disrespectful to me, I would, you know, push him, do other things and get aggressive with that person. And I mean, I even got kicked out of clubs before for doing stupid things like that. And I would be like, well, I was drunk, you know, even though that truly was my behavior at that time. And I think that's what people in addiction do is we actually go in through the addiction because of the pain that we're having. And then we become this person that's not even ourselves. It overtakes our mind and you become a very aggressive person. You know, you constantly feel like you're worthless. And that's why in order for us to combat addiction, we need to understand each other. We need to sit down and say, okay, let's find out what's really going on with you. You know, what's truly the source of you getting into this addiction? What happened in your house? Do you have confidence in yourself? And that's something you work on once you overcome addiction. That's how I was able to overcome it. Did you realize that you had a problem with alcohol? Was it something you were aware of and you just didn't know how to fix or, you know, you were in denial about it? I absolutely, I grew up with that were alcoholics. I saw it growing up. When I was in India, as soon as I could remember, I would see mom who would hit my one of mom. The other didn't. He was great. But one of them would, was very violent. And I would see that. So I knew what alcoholism was. But I told myself that wasn't me. I was like, well, I'm not going around hitting anybody. But I mean, I knew deep within, if I was being real with myself, I knew I had an issue. Somebody who's drinking every day, there's no reason to be drinking. People talk about like, yeah, I can't wait to like, no, you're drinking away your problems. Go deal with your problems instead of drinking a bottle of wine. Instead of going and smoking weed, find out what's going on with you. And so I definitely saw that I was having an issue when I was in my early 20s. I mean, I think I saw it before, but I was in denial before I was in my 20s. But in my 20s, when I was sitting in a room and drinking like a huge bottle, one or two bottles at a time and blacking out and then driving on the wrong side of the highway. Oh my gosh, I couldn't tell you how many times I did that. And I felt sick to my stomach because I was scared to death I was going to kill somebody. Especially one of the times, you know, my parents were living in Cartersville at the time. I was at a club, leaving the club and going back home, horribly drunk. I had drank in the morning. I drank throughout the day. And I was driving home that day 
driving wrong side of the highway, I almost fell asleep. It's nothing but the grace of God that I got home because I don't remember, to be honest with you. I remember driving wrong side of the highway, waking up and then parking my car at my parents' house and walking in. And I remember getting to the house and being like, you know, you would hear about all these people like, you know, hitting somebody while they were driving. And I was just like, God, here I am. I screwed up again. But I didn't really believe in a God. I believed in like just being a peacemaker, kind of. But I was just like, I couldn't believe I was doing that to myself. I wasn't fixing the problem because I would wake up in the morning and drink again and go to work. You know, I just felt sick to my stomach that I kept doing this. And I didn't want to stop because I was like, how am I going to deal with my issues then? You know, I don't want to tell people what I went through. I don't want anybody to know, like I went through molestation and been in unhealthy environments and stuff. Like in Indian culture, you just keep everything silent. We don't talk about our issues. If it wasn't for my dad, I probably wouldn't be alive. I probably would have committed suicide, to be honest with you. But I never, ever wanted to disappoint him growing up. And honestly, that plus like our Dalton community, that really kept me going. The friendships that I developed and just people that might have not even knew that I was close to them or looked up to them or that I loved them like I did, they all truly made me keep going. Because when I would think about them or hear about them, I would just be like, man, those are my peeps. I would do anything for them. So many of them, like there's so many to name. And that, I mean, I definitely knew I had an issue probably before I was 20, but in my twenties is when I definitely saw I was becoming like mom. So it sounds like it was kind of like a cycle. You had some depression from trauma, Mm -hmm. which caused you to drink. But when you would drink, you would feel bad And that would cause the feelings again. Yes, it would cause me to drink. It was a depression. Then next thing you know, I'm cutting myself. I'm cutting my arms. I'm cutting my legs, you know, thinking that would actually make me forget the pain. It was like a cycle of depression, of suicidal attempts, all of this all together. What was that thing that made you realize you had to stop drinking? And did it take a minute for you to actually stop or did you stop right away once you realized you had to? So what actually got me to stop, and I didn't really think about it too much before, I almost quit drinking when one of my really close friends in New York passed away. I lived in New York for a few months after I graduated high school in 2000 in Georgia. And that best friend, he passed away. He smoked weed. He was driving drunk in Manhattan and he crashed onto one of the posts in Manhattan. And that kind of seeing that, I mean, I used to talk to this guy every day. He was like a best friend to me at that time. And seeing that almost made me quit. However, it didn't make me quit. It made me drink even more. But then I met my son's dad and we had gotten married and he was talking about me getting pregnant of us having possibly a kid. I never wanted to have kids. Honestly, I never wanted to have a family because I was scared to death I would screw up. And I never wanted to put a kid through it. I didn't want to put a kid through possibly being molested like I was molested. I didn't want to put a kid through being in an environment where my parents argued all the time. I was scared to death I would keep having these failure relationships. So, you know, and I was like, oh, he seems like a great guy because first few months of the marriage was absolutely great. I was just like, this guy writes me letters. You know, but it seemed too good to be true. To be honest with you, there were so many freaking red flags. We barely knew each other. And when he was like, no, let's really, you know, have a baby. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, actually, like maybe 
I could do something good. And the one good thing would be having a baby. So when we truly decided to have a kid is the day that, I mean, I reflected on it for a few days and all these flashbacks of my, the one was abusive came to my mind. I was already in that track. I was already drinking like he was drinking. I was just not violent. Yeah, I mean, I would get upset if somebody was disrespectful to me at a club. But other than that, I wasn't going around beating people up. But when I thought about having a child, that's when I was like, I can't go this road anymore. So after a few days of us like coming to an agreement that I we are going to try to have a baby, I just decided to quit cold turkey. Uh, I wasn't Christian. I don't know how I did it. But I said in my mind, you know what? I cannot bring a baby into this. And I was scared to death if I would drink that maybe my baby would end up having Down syndrome. I mean, like different different issues. You know, I already had an abortion when I was like 21 years old. I didn't want to end up doing something to another baby. So I just quit. I completely quit back in 2006. How are you able to do that? And how are you able to stay sober? Like, did you to have a withdrawal? Oh my gosh. Like I would, yes, absolutely. I was getting into major depression. So the only reason I was able to quit was because we were truly trying to have a baby. I, I didn't know if I was pregnant. Like soon as we tried having a baby, I thought I was pregnant right away. And I wasn't. That's what made me stop, like not even want to take a sip because I was scared to death. I'll go back to where I used to be. I definitely had withdrawals. Every time, like, because after that, the um, relationship got extremely. And going through that, like before, my outlet to kind of numb any pain was drinking. Right now, I, I couldn't numb the pain. There was nobody. I, I, I wasn't expressive to go tell people what my issue was before. I would keep everything in. And I would smile on the outside, but have like, you know, these issues that I was going through inside. And I wasn't having that. And honestly, I just got into major depression. I would just be in the house crying all the time. And then I opened up a Bible, which I had in the house. And I was like, I was just reading to be reading because I was like, God, if you are real, maybe if I start reading out loud, my baby will end up being good and will be healthy. And honestly, it was just a depression. And then I found out I was pregnant. And that definitely made me not even think about drinking. Like even when I was having issues, I would cry and I stopped cutting myself and everything. When I try to have a kid, all of that stopped completely. And it was actually also, I do want to say, yes, I've been clean for 14 years. And since then I became Christian. However, you know, sometimes people take like, oh, you know, you've been clean for so many years. You're good to go now. Actually, if you don't have God in your life, you're not good to go. That was tested for me this year on February 27th when I lost my dad. I was thinking I was this really strong person. You know, I became Christian. My faith grew and all of this stuff happened throughout those years of 14 years. My faith, of course, has been up and down because of different trials that came into life during that time period. However, February 27th, that shook my world because me and my kids, truly the only family member that I was extremely close to and that I looked up to was my father was that one person that was definitely my ride or die my whole entire life. He never left my side. He never left my kid's side. He was the only person I could say. He even moved up to Maryland when I moved up to Maryland, you know, to be closer to me. When he saw that I went through another divorce with my daughter's dad, he moved up here from India. 
to make sure I didn't have to pay for daycare. So when he died, I just couldn't handle it. And I drove to the liquor store with my daughter in the car seat. Being Christian, being sober, and that at that time, it's 14 years, you know, it was this year. And that very moment, it was nothing but the Holy Spirit. That's why I emphasize for people in addiction, you know, you going into all these meetings that are non-Christian related, and that doesn't emphasize Christianity, you're not going to be able to make it without God in your life. Because it was nothing but God in my life that saved me from going back into alcoholism. Even though alcoholism made me stop by being pregnant with my son, it didn't stop me from possibly relapsing on February 27th. For me, all I thought about was like, I need to get the biggest bottle of liquor. I need to numb this pain. I just lost the most important person in my life. He was so important to me. He was the most phenomenal person in my life. And losing him, you know, I was just like, I didn't know what to do. The only thing I knew what to do was to drink. There wasn't anybody I wanted to call. I just wanted to drink liquor and forget my pain, go sit in my room and just cry. And when I parked my car and, you know, at this time, my daughter's truly in the car seat in back of the car. You would think I would be embarrassed. I mean, I was in a blackout. I didn't even realize my daughter was in the car. To be honest with you, I was crying during that whole car drive. And all of a sudden, a picture popped up on my phone. And people could be like, oh, God isn't real. Come on. All of you guys know God is real. You know, there is nothing but the grace of God. A picture would show up on my cell phone out of the blue while I'm sitting in a liquor store outside in a parking lot of my kids, you know, in a picture of somebody that I love showing up on my cell phone. And that picture just made me come back to reality. And I felt so ashamed. I just broke out crying again. And I was like, God, I am so sorry. I cannot believe my daughter is in the car seat that I would even drive to a liquor store after being clean for so long. They never got to see the alcoholic side of me. They never saw me even like, you know, I would kind of fake it with them if I was going through my depression or bad things because I don't I didn't want them to see an unhappy mom, you know, like a lot of us moms do or parents do. And so it was the grace of God that said, no, you need to drive yourself back home. You know, you go deal with your issues, go back into counseling, you know, and I called a counselor, went back into counseling, like did healthy things that people should do and said, no, I need to open up the Bible. I opened up the Bible, read Jeremiah 29, where it said, for I have the plans to prosper you, you know, and not to harm you. And then I was reading different passages in Psalms and all of those kind of comforted me and saved my life again, you know, and that's truly what has kept me clean all these years. There is nothing but the grace of God that kept me clean. I didn't go into no AA meetings. Yeah, AA meetings might talk about a little bit of God, but it doesn't emphasize God. I have met countless people throughout the years that was completely saved and has been able to keep clean just because they surrendered their life to Christ. You know, and that's why I tell you, if you're in addiction, what you need is truly Jesus. What you need to do is open up a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, send me a message. I would absolutely love to send you a Bible wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you're in Georgia. It doesn't matter what state you're in, what country you're in. I will for sure send you a Bible because I want to see good come out of this. If you want to talk about what Christianity is, because I can't keep silent of what saved my life and what continues saving my life. Because I'm a moment away from drinking again. But by the grace of God, that's what's making me focus. 
and telling me there's more to life than going back into addiction. Because, you know, addiction, that's from the devil. The devil wants to destroy us and make us feel unworthy because of stuff that happened to us. That's actually things that happens to us make us grow and to save other people in life, honestly. Because the trauma that I've been through and, you know, the two divorces that I've been through with both of my kids' dad, I was so embarrassed and felt ashamed, especially after becoming a Christian of having a second divorce. And I was like, no, I'm going to hold my head up high. Nobody's going to make me feel bad again. You know, I already, I'm, I'm done with people affecting how I, my outlook should be. And you learn to overcome that. And you learn that, you know, the only person we have to answer to is Jesus. There's nobody else that's worthy enough to be judging us. For the people that doesn't want to love us, we need to let all those negativity and negative people go. I had to let a lot of my family members go because all they did was bring me down. But there's other people that's not by blood that becomes family. You know, in Maryland, for me, like so many people became like close family to me. And like Georgia, that's like my forever heart. Oh, my gosh. Like people from like Dalton, like you, Shannon, there's so many to name. Like, oh, my gosh, our whole class. If any of them gives me a call right now, I would show up for any of them in a second, in a heartbeat, because they all got my heart forever. They saved me without even them realizing. And that's what I'm telling you guys. If you are in addiction, please give your life to God. What do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. What are you scared of that your life may get better than the misery that you're in at this time? Like I was in that misery too, you know, and Jesus made me see the light. Once I got to like truly, genuinely give my life to God fully, because before I would kind of front it, read the Bible, act like I was a Christian, but I wasn't fully surrendering my life. Until you fully surrender your life and accept Jesus, that's when you see the transformation happen. And you realize you don't care about what anybody say. You live a life of freedom where if somebody got something to talk about, you're like, whatever, let's keep it going. That's so powerful. No, so powerful. It's a true Shannon. It's nothing but God. <laughs> you mentioned just the support of, you know, like your dad and your friends mm-hmm. or people who have a loved one or a friend who is battling addiction. What was it that was helpful that they did? What is something that you could tell people who have a friend like this? how they can be supportive of that person. Sure. So for example, like a lot of people didn't even know I had an alcoholic problem. They didn't. In school, nobody knew because I was kind of acting normal. I would be really quiet. I wasn't very open with people because that's because of my confidence issue. What I would share is make sure you love on them because that little love that you may give, that smile, that hug, you taking that moment to listen to their issue makes the world of a difference. You know, like for my father, when I tell you he was truly my ride or die, that man, I have truly disappointed him countless times. There was times I remember in school so many times when I faked that I was sick because there would be a test just so my dad could do it because my dad was a freaking genius. Like this man, I never met a guy who knew every single question to Jeopardy, who knew every answer to our classes. I would fake it just so I would be like, oh, you know what, if I fake it, My dad would leave work, take a break, bring me some Central Park, which, you know, we had Central Park in Dalton. He (laughs) he would hook me up with those burger and fries and a milkshake. And I was just like, and I could like, you know, feel, make him feel sympathy to me and he'll do my schoolwork. But that love that he gave me kept me going. 
you know, it truly made me be like, and friendships that I had in Dalton. Oh my gosh, like in Dalton, another place, like it absolutely kept me going. It's like that love that people give without them realizing. Like our school friends, they had no idea the trauma I'd been through since I was four years old or that I would go home and start drinking at night, you know, or that I would go home and cut myself, that the reason I would be wearing longer sleeve shirts sometimes at school was because I had cut my arms or cut my legs and stuff, you know, but when I would go there, I would feel at peace because people would show me a smile. They would hug me. They would make me feel like I was part of their crew. Our school, like, oh my gosh, like our Dalton High School, Dalton Middle School, Brookwood, all of it, like Dalton Junior, oh my gosh, like every single person, there's nobody I could say that I can be like, man, I couldn't stand them. Every single one of them, like they continuously showed so much love where the outpouring of love kept me going. Because I'm telling you guys, if I didn't have you guys, all of you guys, including your dad, Amazing Code Starling and everybody else, you guys probably wouldn't see me. You probably would have been at my funeral because you don't know how many times I attempted suicide. It wasn't successful because I was always scared that it would actually happen. But like, you know, how many times I had cut myself so bad and I would be getting up myself up, you know, the next day to go to school with wounds in my arms and my legs and stuff. It happened so many times. It happened the whole time you probably knew me, Shannon. It happened like when I was in Brookwood, it happened in Dalton Junior and Dalton High School, and none of them knew it because I would go there and that would be my avenue of peace and love. So what I would recommend to all of you guys, for anyone that's in addiction, they're in pain. You know, they're continuously still in addiction because they're in pain and they need to feel the love. Let's love on them. Let's show them what God's love is. Let's not just talk and say, hey, this is what Christianity is about. Jesus said we need to go out there and show them what love is. That's why love is emphasized in agape love, which is that next level, the most amazing form of love that only Jesus can show us is emphasized throughout the Bible scripture because the love that Jesus shows us is absolutely phenomenal and it goes through people. So love on anybody, ask them, why don't you take a moment and sit down with your loved one that's battling addiction right now Or even if you don't think they're battling addiction, but you got a feeling something's not right with that person, why don't you give them a call? What's so important, you know, where you don't have about five minutes of your life? You could be saving that person's life. Give them a call and say, hey, how are you doing today? What's going on? You're right this week. You know, I just wanted to call and check up on you. I wanted to make sure everything's okay. I remember you might have dealt with this loss or you might have went through this trauma years ago. If that comes back to your mind, why don't you call them and talk to them about it? Because some of us might have not shared it and went to counseling like I did. I didn't go into counseling for years and years. Counseling wasn't something that's emphasized in the Indian culture. You're kind of just taught to like deal with it, which is unhealthy. You need to deal with it in a healthy manner with a professional. Of course, God will be your counselor too, but God also brings counselors to help you through that process as well and different friends and family. So I would recommend for anybody that knows a loved one or you have any idea of somebody that could possibly be going that road, just love on them. That's truly all you need. I have seen it myself. I lead a recovery Bible study group. And the reason I can tell you it works because I've seen it, that it works in my group. I've seen people's lives being changed, not because of me, but because of Jesus, Jesus working through each of us. If any of you guys are interested in joining our recovery Bible study group, we do have a Zoom option, which a lot of people do join through Zoom. 
you guys are welcome to join our group anytime to meets every other Friday. Was there any aftermath from your addiction that you had to deal with or that you're still dealing with, even though it's been years since you were drinking? Oh, absolutely. The aftermath is the fact that I was in and out of abusive relationships. I didn't have enough confidence to believe in myself that I was worthy of getting somebody like, you know, that was great for my life. So what would I do anytime somebody showed me love? And usually guys are abusive or not so great. will know who's vulnerable. And a lot of the people like that knew that I was vulnerable. And that's why I've had two divorces since then. And, you know, since then, my confidence has grew greatly. And I learned that I need to love myself before I could love anybody else. And so I think that's what actually came about it is the fact that I was in those kind of unhealthy relationships. However, that kind of molded me in how God is using me today as well, because I'm able to use those horrible experience and, you know, show others how you could forgive them, even though they've been horrible to you, how you forgive them and you let them go. That doesn't mean that you hang out with them, but I've learned to forgive them and to let it go so I could have peace for myself. Do you feel that there are any misconceptions that people have about people who are dealing with addiction? Oh, absolutely there is. I've actually heard it. There are so many times where they're just like, why do they keep screwing up? You know, why can't they just get their self together? Like, what's going on? They're like in their 20s. They're in their 30s. Why are they drinking so young? You know, the misconception is the fact that people are so quick to judge, but they're not quick to listen. They're not quick to listen to find out what the underlying problem is. All we want to do is point fingers and say, this person's a screw up. Stop calling people names. If you're not going to be the change, you just need to shut up, honestly. Either we're going to be the change or we're going to learn to hush our mouth. All we're doing is judging. All we're doing is causing more issues. We're not solving the problem. So we need to find ways to solve it, which to solve it, we need to listen. You know, if you have a heart for people in addiction, go make a difference. Go talk to them. Start a group. And all you need to start a group is love and you need Jesus. That's it. Though this was a very difficult situation, and you've kind of touched on it, but what is the blessing that comes from this? The most amazing, and it was a difficult you know, situation. I actually felt so horrible because I felt like I screwed up more before than I actually did good. So those were the horrible outcomes. But the great thing is I've actually talked to countless people who shared their stories and their trauma with me. When I, because I openly talk about my trauma now, because I don't care about what people will say. I know they're going to talk about me behind my back, but I don't care anymore. What I've actually learned is through all of that, I have two beautiful kids and I've actually grown to love people. And God gave me a heart, like a softer heart. Because I, before that, before I was an alcoholic, I might have been more of a judgmental person. I might have been that person where they were, I was just like, what's wrong with them? Like, for example, Seeing my alcoholic growing up, I was just like, what's his issue? Why can't he just stop drinking? He's ruining his family. He's abusive. He's like truly crazy. And like, what's wrong with that man? You know, like all I was doing was judging him as a kid, not realizing like it's an addiction. I had that addiction. I overcame it because of Jesus. But we need to truly just have a softer heart. We need to judge less and love more. I truly feel like I know for a fact that's the key to overcoming addiction. And, and it's also the key to kind of, you know, saving our environment from 
the down spiral that it's going, especially with COVID and everything. People are getting into depression. You know, there's people that might have lost jobs or different things that are happening that's out of anybody's control. And that's why there's no better time than now to love each other. There's no better time than now to call each other and find out what's going on with that family member. Let's all come together and show each other support instead of talking behind each other's back. Let's go to that person and find out what's going on. Anira, thank you so much for letting me interview you. You did not have to share these intimate details of your life, but I really think that your testimony and your story is what someone needed to hear. So I do appreciate you doing this interview. Shannon, I could not thank you enough. Like, you know, I always looked up to you and your dad, especially, you know, seriously, thank you for giving me the honor to share my story, even to send me a message, you know, where I was absolutely so ecstatic when I found out that you wanted me to share the story. Because for me, you know, after going through everything and seeing how Jesus saved my life, I want to share it and bless people as many times as I can because I'm living for Jesus now. So thank you for giving me the honor, you know, of doing this. So thank you so, so much. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And guess what? It's free. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I've probably said this on a few episodes, but mental health should not be taken lightly. From a series of things that happened in her childhood, Anera's mental health became unbalanced. Instead of seeking the help she needed, she tried to suppress her feelings by drinking and blacking out. It is interesting that even though she saw the damage that alcohol was doing in her aunt's lives, it was still the thing she turned to just like the turmoil in growing up, became the turmoil in her relationships as an adult. This is not uncommon, as oftentimes the abused become abusers, children born to teen moms become teen parents themselves, and so on and so forth. But why is this so? I don't have the answer, but perhaps it speaks to our human nature and how we tend to cling to what is familiar, good or bad. Anera made it very clear that she credits God for her sobriety and still being on this earth. She also had friends and other people in her life that loved on her when she didn't love herself. None of them knew her struggles. And that makes me wonder who in my life is battling something I know nothing about. It also hits home how important it is to love one another. We are all different. We may have different points of view but we're all human. We all struggle with something at some point in our lives, and we all desire to be loved and to feel loved. Love heals. Thanks to everyone who has been listening. 
I hope that at least one of these stories has touched you in some way, or at least inspired you to listen and love a little better. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so that you won't miss the next one. Grace and blessings. Blessings.